People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio and this is Rodney Trojan welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. And let me tell you about my guest. My guest is Guy Deacon, who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease 10 years ago. He lives in the UK, so he has access to drugs and treatment and neurologists to make it more bearable. So he decided to travel through Africa, visiting people with Parkinson's disease and the few neurologists that exist to draw attention to the problems of Parkinson's disease in Africa and to shine a light on the suffering of those people who have no access to the drugs and care that people have in the UK. He's been traveling largely alone in a well-equipped VW camper, and we're going to find out about what sounds to me to be an extraordinary trip. So here you are in Cape Town, Guy, and welcome. Welcome to People of Note. Thank you very much. Is Cape Town the end of your trip? Uh, I, I've been saying it's the end of the trip, but of course it's not. It's not the southernmost point of southern Africa. No, it's not. You have to go but to I've, Cape Wellers. I've, I've been to, I've, well, I can never pronounce it, but that particular Cape, and I've done it, so I've been to the southernmost point, so the answer, the short answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> and where did you set out from? Let's just think about it physically before we get into any detail. Where did you start out from? I started in the UK, um, and I started back in 2019 on retiring from the army. And it was all going swimmingly well until March 2020, by which time I'd reached Sierra Leone. And I was then evacuated back to the UK and left my vehicle there and thought I'd be back for about three months, like everybody did, thought it did a little blowover. Two years later, I resumed the trip. But that two years allowed me the opportunity to think carefully about what I was doing and to meet people and talk to people and to focus my attention more clearly on what I was going to achieve for the rest of the trip. Did you specifically want to deal with Africa? Yes. Um, a long time ago when I was at school, I received a book through the post, and the cover of it had a picture of Land Rovers in the desert with people clambering on setting up camp, but it was so evocative. I thought, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And as I grew up, I went to university and joined the army, and I had the opportunity to visit the Sahara and travel around a bit, and I, and I fell in love with the continent because it's so fantastic. And I promised myself that I would do a proper trip when I had the right amount of time and probably the right amount of money, if the truth be known. And that wasn't until I retired. So I've been talking about this for about 35, 40 years. And so everybody knew I was probably going to do it. And um, the fact that I had Parkinson's wasn't going to stop me. I see. So you wanted to do this because you said you got Parkinson's 10 years ago. Yes. So you had already decided you want to do the trip come what may. Yes. And the thing about Parkinson's is you don't realize how difficult things are going to become in the future. You just know how easy or difficult they are at the time. Mm -hmm. And, of course, for the first few years of having Parkinson's, it's, it's relatively benign. and you can, It doesn't really affect what you do in my particular case. They were all different, obviously. So I didn't really appreciate that it would be as difficult as it has been in parts. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, it's not a problem. You know, I can, I've been working for the last 30 years. I should be able to get in the car and drive down through a couple of countries, shouldn't I? shouldn't be a problem at all. <laughs> and when I started, actually, because I was still sort of geared up and literally just left the army, it was reasonably straightforward, and the weather was right, and I was passing through Europe first, and North Africa is a bit easier than West Africa um, for all sorts of reasons. And, uh, and, it, and it was relatively trouble-free. But on returning two years after COVID, I recognized there had been a difference, and I could measure my decline between the first episode and the second episode, if that makes sense. I, and Indeed. I, and I knew what I couldn't do. 
But you could at least drive, which is quite amazing. Yes, yes, thing. Uh, but um, but even that's more difficult because I have a manual car, and um, and changing gear is everybody does it naturally without thinking about it, and I used to it without thinking about it. But it's it's, it's actually a, a significantly complicated process. You know, you have to take your hands off the steering wheel, you have to put it on the gear stick, you have to lift a foot up to put it on the clutch, you have to take the other foot off the accelerator, put it on the brake or whatever you're doing to change gear. So there's lots of actions which need consideration. And that sort of thing is quite difficult if you have Parkinson's because everything requires thought. Mm-hmm. I want to, in the course of the interview, question you more about what Parkinson's is all about. And as you say, various people are affected in different ways yes. and how it affected you. But just one other thing while we're talking about your trip physically, how did you plot your trip? Some people might accuse me of being naive, <laughs> and um, and in retrospect, perhaps I was. There are only so many times and ways in which you can pass through the whole of Africa because there's nearly always a country or two having a, a bit of a ding-dong with a next-door country or mm-hmm. a, an internal problem. And that's the case in East Africa at the moment. You can't get down the Nile very easily or round into Kenya very easily. So, and I wanted to go around the West Coast anyway, and the West Coast is clear at the moment because Western Sahara is visible now, which it wasn't for a long time. Uh, Mali and Mauritania, well, not Mali, Mauritania is, is easy now, and it wasn't a few years ago. Nigeria gets a bit tricky, and the border between Nigeria and Cameroon is very tricky. In fact, it's probably closed, but I get it, got across that. And then once you're south of there, Angola is all easy now. The Congos are easy, uh, relatively and so the West Coast was the easiest route to do, and it was the most interesting route as well, because I don't know much about the West Coast of Africa, as is the case with most people in, in England. We know about Kenya and Tanzania and South Africa and Zimbabwe and, and all those sort of places, but we have very little idea about what Angola's like, or Gabon, or Equatorial Guinea, or Cameroon, or any of those places, because it's not part of our history in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I want to draw attention to those places as I've been passing through them. Did you, had you been to South Africa before? Uh, yes, I had, uh, but not properly. I'd flown in, seen a lion and a giraffe and flown out again, that sort of thing, which is, is really not, not a it's way. It's not seeing South no, Africa. No, and, and so I, 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 the answer is no, I haven't seen South Africa, but I've seen game in, in South Africa before, but it doesn't really, it's not the same thing at all. And um, a practical question again, when you were driving down, did you sleep in your car? But I, I tried to sleep in it all the time. Because if I stayed in hotels or whatever, it would be quite expensive. Yes. And the camper van is, is pretty well equipped for sleeping in. And uh, it means you know, I could, and I, and I did regularly stop anywhere I wanted, check that it was safe and there was nobody around who was going to cause me any trouble, pop the roof up, cook a meal, or not cook a meal because I don't do that very often, so have a schlaf, have a sleep, and off I go. And, and that's, that's the beauty of it, and that's what I wanted to do. And again, in, in North Africa and the desert, you can drive away from people relatively easy and find complete solitude with nothing but the stars, and you can set up camp, and it's just glorious. Okay, now, there are many more questions to ask you, uh, Guy, but let's have a look at your first piece of music. I see you've chosen the Radetzky March. Is there a reason for this choice? Uh, very much so. It's, um, it's, uh, I think it's one of the finest marches there is, and that's not just because it is a fine march, it's because it's my own regimental march. Oh, right, and my regiment is the Queen's Union Guards, which I was in for my career. And it became our regimental march because Franz Josef was our colonel at the time. And so we have strong connections with Vienna and Austria and the Litsky March. <laughs>
certainly one of the most famous marches, that the Radetzky March by Johann Strauss, and it was the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, whose name is Guy Deacon, who has just travelled across Africa from Sussex in England down to Cape Town uh, to raise awareness for Parkinson's disease. But I want to return now to your journey. We were talking about you sleeping, Guy, in your VW camper, and you said you checked that it was safe. Did you have any problems on the way down, any security problems or attacks or no. incidents? No. And indeed, one of the things that's been most notable about this whole trip has been the complete opposite of what people had warned me about. I was warned to be careful, lock all your doors and all those things, which is obviously prudent and sensible. But at no stage was I ever threatened or felt threatened. And indeed, when anybody I, m I met was over-friendly, the worst thing, they were over-friendly and trying to do too much to help. <laughs> really? and, okay. to, and sort of doing things for you which you didn't want done. People couldn't have been kinder. And I had a few dramas along the way, and I really needed help too. And, and people were just fantastic. And it's been a real eye-opener and told me really that the less people have, the more they're prepared to help and the more they go out of their way to look after you. And, and you can never repay them. Uh, and I've been looked after in people's houses. They've sort of moved their children out of rooms to, to give me accommodation. I've had them drive me miles and miles and miles. They've fed me. It's quite extraordinary how, how kind people have been. And as I say, I've, I've never experienced anything like that again, and I'm sure I wouldn't in any other part of the world. It's just amazing. But then how logistically did it work with getting your message across? Say, for example, you arrive in a certain town, what did you then do? Did you have contacts to uh, find out how you could yes, I did. work out what to do uh, and where to go? Yes. Um, my general rule of thumb was to, I, I'd have to go to capital cities anyway to get a visa for the next couple of countries. I was able to have oh, visas to, to in advance. Yeah. So I would book in with the High Commissioner, the British High Commissioner, and plug into their media network, and they were often very helpful where they could be. Or I would have a list of contacts I'd made up beforehand. People always say, you must go and visit such and such when you get to wherever. And so I would, ha I would ring them in advance and say, I'm coming through, you know, you, you did offer a bed for the night, we c can I come and stay? Because I, I would try and stay with people in, in cities and that stuff because it's a bit difficult to camp in a city. In a city, yes. And then I would then use those people to put me in touch with anybody in the media. And as a rule, I was reasonably successful in getting television and radio and newspaper in each country. Didn't manage in the Congo because I didn't go to Kinshasa or to Brazzaville, but I've done it every other country that I've been through. And as a result, I, I'm making this up a bit as I go along. I've probably been heard by over 500 million people, um, but I've probably been listened to by a, a considerably fewer number and acted upon <laughs> by one or two people. One or two, yes. But people have had the chance to listen to me. Well, so. that's the main thing that you've yeah. been uh, that you've got out there. But what did you tell people to do? I mean, how did it work? How did you go about? raising awareness for Parkinson's. I would speak to chief medical officers as well if I had the opportunity, So, I, and we would interview them. But uh, what I would do, I'd talk about myself, my own condition, and then I'd talk about what to look for in people around, um, because it's very obvious. I'm no neurologist, and I'm no, not even a doctor, but it's pretty obvious what the symptoms are in, in, in the majority of cases. Everybody's different, of course. And I would talk about what it was like to have Parkinson's and, um, and how I managed with Parkinson's and what I could and couldn't do. Uh, the aim being to tell people who are listening who may have Parkinson's that they're not alone and that you can still do what you want to do if you try hard enough and you mustn't give in to it. And I would try and to get the message to families of people with Parkinson's because the biggest problem with Parkinson's is not the Parkinson's, which is a problem. It's the attitude people have towards it. 
and South Africa is, is quite different to the rest of Africa in many, many ways. But there is a significant stigma attached to Parkinson's because it's a very strange disease. There's no cure. There's no cause for it in the first place. It comes out of the blue. There's no cure, and it manifests itself in a pretty unpleasant physical sort of wobbling and shaking and goodness knows what, which is really unpleasant, and people get very scared by it. And so people assume it's witchcraft and black magic and all that sort of stuff, and they don't recognize what it is, which is a straightforward neurological condition where people don't have enough dopamine. It's, it's very simple. And if people knew that and people weren't to blame for having it and they haven't done anything wrong, then that means people would actually take a bit more interest in care for them a bit better because it's not just the pills and tablets and everything like that that matter. It's the, it's the fact that people are helping them and caring for them and loving them rather than abandoning them. And there are too many examples of families which, for all the reasons they, they've got wrong, but I understand, have abandoned people because they've got this rather strange condition which can only be associated with witchcraft. And that's not true. Do you know how rife Parkinson's is in Africa and in South Africa? No, no, we don't. Uh, I, I certainly don't. And the problem is, of course, that it's um, it's it's generally associated with with an aging population. Hmm. Although in Africa, it's being seen increasingly in younger people, and young is any anybody below fifty in the UK, but would be younger again in Africa. Yes. And there's many other problems to worry about as well, which are significantly greater and cover affect more people. So it's, it's not a high priority, and I understand that. But if you're an individual who's got it, then it's a very high priority. And it can be alleviated, it can't be cured, but if people understand what's going on and talk to each other and look after them and help each other and just care for each other, that's, it makes life so much better. Because it's not just the physical side, it's the, it's the mental business of, of backing away and wishing to have nothing to do with anybody because it affects your psyche, your psyche at the same time. Because dopamine is an important sort of, we're not quite sure what the word, not, not hormone, but whatever it does, it, it has a huge effect on your body and your mind. The dopamine is something that we, we possess all have ordinarily, and if you're short of dopamine, you yeah. could get Parkinson's, is that what you're saying? If you're short of dopamine, you will have Parkinson's. Um, because it's, it's dopamine that you need to make sure the nervous system is working properly and can get the right messages to the right muscles. Mm. And if you don't have dopamine, it doesn't work very well. So the tablets I take replicate dopamine to a certain extent and make the receptors more receptive to what little dopamine you've got left. But it, I'm down... We, we're all losing our dopamine quite quickly because it sort of runs out over time. Mm -hmm. But I've run out faster than other people, so I'm probably down to about 10% of what I should have. Whereas most people are about 40%, they wouldn't notice because there's, there's plenty of extra in there okay. to go around, if that makes sense. Okay, yes, yes, yes. I want to talk more about the uh, effect Parkinson's has had on you personally, Guy, in a moment. But you've got a beautiful hymn here that you've chosen. The day thou gavest, Lord, has ended. Tell me why you've chosen this. It's, it's almost going to make me cry thinking about it. It's, it's the most fabulous hymn. And uh, when I was at school in... Gloucestershire as a young boy we said the Vespers on Sunday evening we'd always have this hymn it brings back this memory of the end of a sort of it wasn't summery the whole time of course but it felt summery wonderful summer's evenings going into the chapel seeing this hymn and um, so it's been ingrained in my memory and of course it's always played at funerals mm. and it was played at my father's funeral and um, it's just the most wonderful wonderful hymn
Well, there we heard that rather beautiful hymn, The Day Thou Gavest, Lord, Has Ended. And it's the choice of my guest, Guy Deacon, on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week. Guy, you've been speaking about dopamine and the effect that Parkinson has on you. How did you, would you mind sharing with us how you discovered you've got Parkinson's and how it has affected you? The first thing is, I didn't think I had anything wrong with me. Um, you find a million and one reasons why things aren't going quite right. And I would, for example, I couldn't put one of my hands in my trouser pockets, and I assumed rather than me being at fault, it was my trouser pocket at fault suddenly. <laughs> uh, you know, somebody had turned up my pocket or something, it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would stumble with my right leg, and, and I said, well, it's a gravelly ground. I was in the Congo at the time, so mm -hmm. there's a good reason for that. And I would be cleaning my teeth. My hand would just sort of rest in the midair for no reason. Uh, and that was a bit weird. I thought, that's a bit strange. And I couldn't turn the pages over in my book. And I thought, that's a bit strange as well. And I assumed I'd been bitten by something or I had a trapped nerve or whatever. There was no pain involved. But I just couldn't do that fine dexterity. And I ignored it, obviously, and just carried on regardless. When I came back from the Congo to the UK, I was in quite a sort of poor state. I was very tired, very run down. I'd been disarming rebels and that sort of stuff for a year and a half, which is a long time in the Congo. And I was advised very firmly to go and see a doctor. And I thought, well, no, I'm fine. I'm just tired. And it took a doctor a short amount of time to diagnose me with something. And it took the neurologist about 10 seconds to say, you've got Parkinson's. <laughs> really as quick Because it's really obvious when you know what to look for. Really, really obvious. My goodness. Just let me go back a step. You were in the Congo when you were a colonel in the army. Yes. Working in the army, you say disarming rebels. Yes, I was with the UN, um, uh, but my s the second part of my time out there was with the UN DDRRR, the disarmament group, and I was spending a lot of time in the jungle, going and seeking out rebels and encouraging them to come in. Fascinating job, loved every bit of it. And I shared an office with the next rebel, who was a, become a great friend. And um, I learned my sort of Belgian French from him, and he learned his English, rubbish English from me. <laughs> and right. we, we, it was an amazing experience, and uh, and I loved it. But it was it, I, I was quite worn out by the end of it, as you can imagine. And it had masked the Parkinson's, which was so obvious to anybody who knew what to look for. Mm -hmm. But Parkinson's is not really... I mean, you can't say that working in the Congo in the army might have caused Parkinson's? Well, uh, nobody knows what causes Parkinson's, and there's is lots of people, so? is people are so? doing all their homework to try and find out what the reason is, and it could be some sort of s significant stress factor which has triggered it, and uh, it was quite a stressful time in the Congo, and it, uh, life was quite tricky in many, many ways, and it was difficult living there, so it could have been that brought it on, but it didn't cause it, I don't think. I think I'm just the unlucky one who's not got enough dopamine. It's just that's the way the cars were dealt out on the day I was in the back of the queue. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think you can blame the Congo or whatever on, on that. And so does it get progressively worse then, Parkinson's disease, absolutely. as you get older? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it, it gets worse on a daily basis. You don't notice really? it on a daily basis, but you know tomorrow might be a good day, but by and large it's not going to be quite as good as it was yesterday. It's a steady decline, and you don't notice it particularly until you take a look back. And that was what's so obvious about the coming and starting the trip again in Sierra Leone and comparing it to when I started in the UK. I just couldn't lift things and I couldn't manoeuvre things. My balance was worse than it was before. And that two-year gap, two-and-a-half-year gap, had really sort of seen me deteriorate. Uh, added to which the environment was... It was I came out at the beginning of the summer, whereas I'd driven down to the winter through the desert, so it's cool and then, then hot. Mm. The population in West Africa is greater and more difficult there's more Sierra Leone's English speaking but by and large there's more French speaking going on much more traffic much more 
many more problems and my own condition was worse so it's, it was much more difficult from Sierra Leone onwards. But you pressed on, this is what I find amazing, uh, bearing in mind you had these issues with Parkinson's disease like not being able to lift things or changing gear that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. You, you well, that's not, when, it's when, I'm, when I'm fine, I'm absolutely fine and you wouldn't know I've got one, one of the big frustrations is people who see me in the street wouldn't know I had a problem. If, unless they saw me when I wasn't good, then I can't move. I mm -hmm. literally have to lean against the wall and wait. How are you now? I'm sort of all right-ish, all right-ish. I mean, when I'm when I'm fine, you wouldn't know I had a problem. Yes. But when I'm bad, you would think, my goodness me, this person needs to be in hospital. Oh, and, really? and it's as bad as that. Yeah. And one associates, perhaps naively, Parkinson's with shaking. Well, that's right because that's the commonest form. That's the disco version I'm, and I'm the Brady version disco kinesis and Brady kinesis they're the two different types oh, are those official and, names yeah and, and I and I have I have Brady kinesis which means I don't move and I'm static so if I'm if you see me going through a door I have to aim at it because I can't move easily I have to I'm like a juggernaut when I get going in a certain direction I, I'm, I'm falling over so I have to move fast to make sure I don't fall over but I can't change direction right and if I find myself in a queue waiting to f buy something in a shop I often bump into the person in front because my balance is so bad so it's a bit embarrassing and you also mentioned something about it simple things that we do every day like picking up change off a counter you said was difficult it's not just difficult it's maddening and everybody is very helpful and they put the notes in your hand and the coins on top and the receipt and you look at it and think how am I going to get that into my pocket how am I going to get those coins off those pile of notes and, and wrestle those notes into my wallet? And you just feel like leaving the cash there and just walking away because it's so difficult. And getting money in... Money, wallets is a very good example of something that's so obviously easy for most people and so incredibly difficult for people like me. What I normally do is I just open my wallet up to whoever I'm buying things from and say, help yourself to what you think you're right, you need. And, and I've done that all over the place and people have been very careful. They can't believe I'm doing it. <laughs> And trusting them to the extreme. We take yeah. out the right yeah. amount of money and give me the right change and everything because I, mm -hmm. uh, I can't do it myself. So it's that sort of thing. It's the fine dexterity which is impossible. When somebody says fill out a form, I go cold at the prospect of trying to fill out a form and putting all the detail in because I, I can't write properly. and I, I certainly can't read my own writing. So I know, I know they can't, so they might as well do it themselves. So I ask them to do it for me. Dictate to them sort of thing. Yeah. And um, eating when you need to eat? It's a very good point. I've been, I'm always in trouble because I don't really eat properly. Uh, As a result of your condition? I, well, I've never been a great foodie anyway, to be honest, but because it's difficult to eat and operating a knife and a fork at the same time is really hard. So it, it, sandwiches are good. Um, anything I can use my fingers and, and I'm a messy eater. So and it's a significant fact because it means I don't like going out with other people because I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed. I dribble and I drool and spill food down my It's <laughs> not much fun to do it to go out for dinner with. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I won't invite you for dinner. No, no, don't. Not this time around. But um, um, <laughs> let's take another piece of music now, Guy. And you've chosen the Organ Symphony by Saint-Saëns, which is a huge favorite, certainly on this station. And is there a specific reason you chose this? It just reminds me of a period when my children were young, um, as most of these songs do, actually. And it's just such a thumpingly good track. Uh, am I allowed to use the word track? Yes, yes, indeed. I can imagine a friend of mine who's a great organist thumping this out and playing it, and he and it's a wonderful bit of music.
part of the last moment of the organ concerto. Well, it's called an organ concerto, but it's actually an organ symphony by Saint-Saëns. And it was another choice of my guest here on People of Note on Fine Music Radio this week, Guy Deacon. Guy was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease 10 years ago, and he has just driven from the UK to Cape Town through Africa, as you've been hearing, to find out, or rather to explain to people what this disease is all about. Because you said, Guy, just now, while we were listening to that piece of music, that um, some people don't want to talk about it. They they sort of keep it quiet. They they don't want to talk about it. And you are being very open for us, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, people don't want to talk about it because it's, 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 it's an embarrassing thing to have. And there, every single thing you can think of is more difficult for some of your Parkinson's. It doesn't matter what it is. Putting on a shirt is, you know, I struggle to put on a shirt which has buttons. Cufflinks, I've given up wearing cufflinks. Eating is a real problem, and I'm a very mess eater. And there's, it's, it's very obvious when you think about it. My head is always leaning down, so I'm trying to force food in a vertical direction into my mouth, so it's almost bound to fall out, isn't it? <laughs> yes, so if you put it that way. So yes. drinking tea is <laughs> difficult. So I was going to say, what about liquids? Because I don't tip my head back enough, because I'm, I'm, I'm worrying about falling over backwards. So people are forced to drink tea when you're head down to get rid of hiccups. So I'm doing that the whole time. So you never have hiccups, maybe. So I never have hiccups, but it means that you don't drink as much as you should, mm-hmm. you don't eat as much as you should, and you, and you don't like doing it with other people because you feel a complete fool, and you're really conscious of how awkward it looks and how messy you are and how scruffy you are because, you know, I don't wear, I, I, polishing shoes and doing up late, all, all those sort of things uh, are just really difficult. So you tend to avoid all that. Mm-hmm. And because getting dressed is difficult as well, um, so to going out to dinner with somebody, you've got to get dressed up smart and you've got to have witty conversation and you've got to eat their food and be polite about it and all this sort of stuff. You'd just rather not because it's every single aspect of that is difficult and they've got to be very good friends for you to, to, to inflict yourself upon them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes, I like the way you say inflict yourself upon yeah, them. Yeah, so, so you tend, people like me tend, I, I assume people are the same, feeling the same as me, we, don't tend, we tend to lock ourselves away a bit mm-hmm. and just live with ourselves and just get on with it quietly. And that's not very helpful because it means people don't know what we're really feeling and what we're going through. And in some families, not mine, because I'm doing this, people really don't know what their loved one is suffering from. And that's particularly so in a place like Africa where it, people think it's contagious and they can catch it so they're, they're just abandoned and they're left to rot almost. And it's not contagious, is it? It no, couldn't possibly all. be not, contagious. Not at all contagious. Not at all contagious. Mm. It's not even genetic. There's a there's a, some research being done to whether there's a genetic link, but it, there doesn't seem to be. So there's no reason for it. It's just you're the lucky one who hasn't got. And no one it. in your family has it. Not to my knowledge. Right, right, right. Your career in the army was that was that a lifelong career? Yes, yes. When um, you left school and all that, you wanted to go to the. Into my the father army. was in the army, and um, so I, I I never said I want to join the army, but it was always pretty obvious I was wanted to join the army. And that's what I did, and um, and I had a wonderful career doing all sorts of different things. But the, the the things like the Congo were brilliant. But it was the last ten years when I was paid the same as everybody else for doing my job, and and thank goodness because people who were not as badly off as me were were being unemployed because they couldn't get jobs. But the army looked after me very well, provided all the drugs, gave me the jobs I wanted to do, and. But the people around me, immediately around me, were very helpful, and so I could ask them to do things, and they would always do it. But um, it was the most satisfying four years, last four years of my of my career, because I was having an impact with a team of people that were having bright ideas, doing great things, and despite Parkinson's, we were succeeding, and it was amazing. 
and I and I couldn't be more grateful to my employer for that. It, it gave me a reason to get out of bed, and that's the important thing. And that kind of staved off the Parkinson's because it wasn't the important issue of the time. Yes. With the psychological drama of having Parkinson's, do therapists help? I don't know. I, again, this is one of the things because we, I, I, I'm, I've ignored. I've, I've pretended I haven't got it for a long time. Why is the army said, no, I'm just ordinary, blah, blah, blah. I can, fight, I can beat this thing. You can't beat it. it it's going to get you eventually. And there comes a time when people can help by talking to you and and explaining and helping you through these things. And that's what I'm doing personally. I'm by exposing my own thoughts and my own feelings. That sort of cathartic sort of effort is is helping me a lot actually. And it's given me a real sense of purpose. If I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't be able to get a real job because I can't write. I can't take notes. I can't listen to what people are saying. Can't remember four or seven interviews. What sort of stuff. So therefore, I've got to do something to make it all worthwhile, make it worth getting out of bed, and this is that. And by having such a, a personal message about Parkinson's and being able to reach people who haven't been reached before, it's given me a real sort of reason to, to live, really. All right, Guy, let's have another piece of music, and you've chosen a favourite of mine here, Petula Clark, singing Downtown. I mean, it's a lovely piece, but I would like to know why you chose it, why it's special to you. I, I, this is the first song I remember as a child, from 1964, whenever it would have been. I was two or three years old, and I'm sure I didn't remember it then, but I feel as if I remembered it. And I remember where we lived as a, as a young boy, and my parents being a, a younger than I am now. And it's just the most fantastic tune, but that's part of it. So it's always been in my background. But when I used to take my daughter to school, and I'd drive her down the drive to drop her off on Sunday evenings again, Sunday evenings are a very important schooling time, it was the drive was just long enough to play the entire tr- tune from <laughs> beginning from the gate to the door. I'd have to drive quite slowly, and so we used to belt this song out at the top of our voices as we were going down the drive. And it's, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful song. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. Worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help. I know downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose the light so much brighter there? You can't forget all your troubles. Your problems surround you, there are movie shows Downtown, maybe you know some little places to go to where they never close Downtown, just listen to the rhythm of a gentle bossa You'll be dancing with them too before the night is over Happy again, the light's so much brighter Don't 
you are, Petula Clark and that great hit of hers, Downtown. And it was a choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Guy Deacon. We're talking about Parkinson's disease and your trip across Africa from England to Cape Town. But there's a charity here that you became involved in called Cure Parkinson's. Tell me a little bit about that. Cure Parkinson's was a very brave initiative by a chap called Tom Isaacs to focus people's attention on finding a cure rather than on palliative care and looking up if we've got it. And um, at the time, this is some 15 years ago, I suppose, and he was very young when he was diagnosed. He's dead now, sadly. Um, nobody was talking about a cure. It was you know, ridiculous. It's just one of those things we, 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 we do look after you and make, and make it sort of as easy as we can. But he said, no, no, we're going to try and find a cure. And this has grown in stature, this charity, and it's now run by completely dedicated people, one of whom I've known since she was a girl of 13, by chance. And and they've helped me a lot in getting in touch with people and making sure that I'm doing all the right things, including Parkinson's Africa, which is a specific charity to raise awareness of Parkinson's in Africa. Because it's here, and people don't know about it. They just know that their mother or their aunt or their grandparents is behaving strangely and shaking or wobbling, and they can't put their finger on what it is. And doctors don't know. There are very few neurosurgeons around. And so people just don't aren't aware of what's happening. So by raising the, the issue and discussing it and having a conversation, people can start to open up to the possibility of, of doing something about it. I mean, I'm not in the business of providing more drugs and making sure that we, the governments do all that sort of thing because that's a bigger issue and it's expensive and, and there are other problems for governments to worry about. It's about recognising the condition exists being honest about it and helping those people who've got it by just being decent to them and not locking them away and recognising it's a straightforward clinical condition. It's not magic. And if we do that, then we will start to make... We won't save lives, but we'll save people's lives in terms of living quality and make it worth them their while, and people will, will not be frightened of it. And there are some amazing people throughout Africa I've met. I've met lots of people who've had Parkinson's in about 10 countries or so, and there have been some real dynamos, either with or without Parkinson's, who have done so much to raise awareness in their own countries. And if we could replicate that throughout the other countries, it would make a big difference to a lot of people's lives. And then we'd know how many people there were, and then we'd know how big a problem it was, and then we'd be able to focus research on it and all this sort of stuff. I mean, there's lots of avenues that can be explored, but we can't do it until we've opened the, the conversation up. And one of the things, um, am I right in saying that Parkinson's is ultimately fatal or not? No, it doesn't kill you. What you well, I don't think it kills you. What people die of is they fall over and they they drop things on themselves. They're swallowing and their breathing gets more difficult. And if, if it's anything like me, they kind of probably lose the will to live, to be honest, because it's blinking difficult sometimes. Mm. So Parkinson's is just a contributing factor to whatever it is that's going to kill you, which is great news to have Parkinson's and something else as well. <laughs> So that's kind of what happens. Um, okay. But okay. Uh, to, what we're doing is we're not only am I getting on media in each country I go to, we're making a film which can which will hopefully be distributed by something like the BBC or the biggest network people can find. And it's designed to tell my story so people know what I'm feeling rather than what I look like. And that will have a chime with other people who've got it as well. Tell the story of people in Africa who've got it and as well as bring the, the countries I've passed through to people's doors because there are some amazing places I've been that you know people wouldn't even imagine exist and it's, it's parts of Africa which will blow people's socks off. And this film that's going to be made, this documentary, uh, uh, do you have a team working with you? I have a team of one and he's been out to visit me four times. He came out to Sierra Leone to see me start off in the second part. He then came out to Nigeria as well 
and then uh, Gabon, and finally the end of Namibia and down here. So he's been taking quite a lot of footage of me, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just the two of us, uh, and I've been trying to film things myself, which is, the problem is, the interesting stuff to film is the stuff that I don't want to film because it's too difficult. You know, I'm emotionally distraught. I can't operate the camera. My hands are shaking. It's late at night, and that's what we need to film because people need to see that rather than when I'm just happy and cheerful and it's dead easy. That's boring television, isn't it? People want to see me, what it's really like having to do things, and it's really difficult to, 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 to film that. <laughs> I can imagine. But then, okay, now that you've done this trip here to Cape Town, what next? What happens now? Well, we, it's going to take quite a long time to put the film together, and we, between now and June, I think, we're going to finish the film off and go on a bit of a lecture tour and try and distribute it as best we can. Right. And I'm going to, I'm, with the help of somebody else, I'm going to write a book. And it, again, it'll be very honest, very open, and uh, my family have been very alert, alert to the fact that they're going to find out things about me that I've never told them, because I, I, I've got to tell people what I feel, because otherwise I'm cheating myself, and mm-hmm. it's, it, that's what the aim of the game is. And once that's all over, I'm toying with an idea of going to the United States for a, a similar tour, but seeing the other end of the spectrum where everything is provided for, Drugs are available, people know what they're doing, Parkinson's is well known, and just seeing, comparing the difference actually, and it'll be very stark. I'm sure, I'm sure. And um, when do you go back to the UK? I go back in two days' time, um, which is very soon. And what happens to your car? It's going in a container back to the UK. Right. Which is a, I was going to say a well-trodden route, a well-paddled route, I think, is probably better. <laughs> yes, so that, that's what I'm going to do with it. And it's got a few things to put right because it's had a, it's been a rough old journey, but mm-hmm. it's got me from top to bottom. And it's an old mate of mine, you know. I've, it's, of heard, it's heard me crying, it's heard me laughing, it's heard me weeping. It's, um, yeah, I've, it, it, if it could tell some stories, it would. Yeah. Guys, it's been fascinating talking to you and also that you have been so honest um, with this curious disease called Parkinson's disease. And I'm sure that people who are listening might realize that they need to have something checked out, you know, or whatever. And as you say, you need to get your message out. So I'm so grateful that you shared all this with us. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. And now, what is your last piece of music? This, this, this is an easy choice, and it is easy by the Commodores. And ever since I was, this song came out, a friend of mine have said, that's the finest song that's ever been sung by anybody. It's not, of course, but it's brilliant. So that's why I've got it. And when I rang him up and said, I'm going to choose my favourite song, he said, well, that's easy. Number one is the Commodores. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't get away from it. And, and easy by the Commodores. Brilliant okay. track. Um, Guy Deacon, thank you very much. And best of luck with what you're going to do with the film and the book and all the rest of it. Thank you very much.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.